Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. So, Mara, we have a big week coming up on Days of Our Lives. Greg Vaughn will air again as Eric, and we'll make it back to Salem in time to celebrate Eric and Nicole's first wedding anniversary. Now, I spoke to Greg about his visit. He's only airing for about a week or so, but he tells me they packed a lot into a short amount of time. So the last time he was on set was in November 2019. So adjusting to the protocols uh, with COVID took a minute. Um, Greg said he's a big hugger and he already had COVID and got vaccinated. So when he saw his day's family, he was not shy about embracing them, even though that might not have been the rule on set. He was excited to also work with Ali Sweeney and Deidre Hall and reports that he and Ariane Zucker fell right back into their rhythm. Now, speaking of Ari, she has some fantastic fantastic real-life news to celebrate. Um, She and Sean Christian, who played Daniel, are engaged. So they've been dating for years, but Sean surprised her by proposing on Father's Day, and they both couldn't be more thrilled. And it's so great. I'm so happy for both of them because it is just such nice news. It really is. And I'm so excited for return. And Nicole and Eric's reunion is only one of the big romantic developments on Days this week that we talk about in the new issue. Sin bands can look forward to their duo of choice growing closer. And there was also an impromptu marriage proposal, as we will see Justin and Bonnie get engaged. There's another somewhat long-awaited moment poised to take place on GH next week, which is the reveal of who Roger Howarth is really playing. As I'm sure fans have noticed, we know that his name is Austin, but he has been rather reluctant to reveal his last name. He will do so this coming week, and there is going to be major fallout for the Quartermain family when he does. And on top of that, the show has recast a key role in another legacy family, the Cassidines, with Nicholas Chavez assuming the role of Spencer, who, as we now know, is A, the stalker targeting Ava and Nicholas in an apparent attempt to break them up, and B, quite interested in Trina. And another debut is also taking place next week on GH when viewers are treated to a lavish new set, the rooftop pool at the Metro Court. I had such a fun time interviewing the show's production designers about how it was constructed and how it was decorated. And uh, that was in the new issue as well, along with some great photos of the pool. 
Oh, that set looks amazing. And I am actually super psyched for summer now on GH. <laughs> um, I love when the shows spruce up current sets like Days Did with the Demera and Kyriakos Mansions or create completely new sets like GH is doing with this one or like, you know, adding on to an existing set. It's just so creative. And little by little, I feel like GH is getting a facelift and I am not mad about it. Um, in other story news, I'm sure B&B fans will be happy to know that Hope Saves Liam, who is released from jail at last. Um, and on the B&B news front, you spoke to Ted King about joining the cast as Jack, Finn's father. Um, I love that they're building out this family. I am super psyched for Ted, who is not only a great actor, but has great taste in music and used to write a column for the magazine called Kingspin. I had such a great conversation with Ted. What a, what a great bit of casting, I think. Uh, he said that over the course of the pandemic, he had been downright jealous of all of his friends from his various daytime roles who were getting to work consistently, and he was really hungry to have the creative outlet of work. So when B&B called, it was just the perfect timing for him. Uh, he got to see a number of familiar faces at B&B. He worked with Scott Clifton, Liam, when Scott played Dylan on GH during Ted's run there as Luis and Lorenzo Alcazar. He goes way back with Torsten K. Ridge as they got their starts together back in New York on ABC when Ted was on Loving and later the city as Danny and Torsten was playing Patrick on One Life to Live. He said that having friends there made it a lot more comfortable to be the new kid. And he even has a buddy down the hall, another GH alum, Jason Thompson, ex-Patrick, who plays YNR's Billy. Uh, Jason was kind enough to help Ted figure out where to go for lunch on his first day. Always important. Indeed. Uh, he's playing Finn's dad, as you said, and Ted described Tanner Noblin as really easy to connect with, easy to work off of, and he said that he was really happy that the show's show social distance protocols had relaxed before he got there because, you know, just being able to have that physicality as father and son, being able to actually touch Finn as Jack in their scenes together also really helped to establish the intimacy of that relationship. I just think he's going to be such a, a big asset to B&B and I'm excited for his debut. Oh, I could not agree with you more. I am as well. And our guest today is no stranger to Bold and Beautiful. It is Sean Kanan, who played Deacon and just took home an Emmy at the 48th Annual Daytime Emmys and has plenty of daytime experience to discuss, not to mention films and books that he's written and just so much more. So let's check in and see how he's doing. Hi, Sean. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to talk with you today. So are we. You have so much going on. It's, you know, a where to begin moment here. But we're going to begin at the beginning. You were born in Ohio, raised there and in Pennsylvania, and earned your college degree in political science. So looking back, were there clues that you were going to end up in a creative field? You know, it's funny. I, I talk about this in my book, Way the Cobra. I grew up in this uh, town in Western Pennsylvania, not a big town. And for me, um, going to the movies was this incredible escape. I used to always love to do it myself. And there was just something about, you know, sitting in that, in that seat, looking at that 30 foot screen in the dark. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the movie stars that I saw were like my earliest mentors. You know, there was um, Clint Eastwood as the outlaw Josie Wales or Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, you know, Alec Guinness and Bruce Lee. And watching movies did a couple things. It, it was able to transport me to kind of a horizon beyond, you know, my immediate view. And, um, and it also... I remember just being mesmerized by watching these actors and, you know, the unbelievable power of 
I don't know, communication and, and, and transfixing the audience. And I, I think I, I started to germinate the idea as a really young kid that, that I wanted to do that. Um, you know, I was in plays when I was a kid. I wasn't like a drama geek or anything, but um, I enjoyed being in plays. But by the time I got to college, uh, I had decided pretty seriously that I was going to pursue a career in acting. And I realized that I either had to go to New York or I had to go to Los Angeles. And I, I figured it was you know easier to starve where the weather was nice. And so, uh, I transferred out to UCLA to finish my political science degree. So how did you make your entree into showbiz? Like, it's one thing to want to do it. It's another right. thing to do it. Okay, so I had a friend, and uh, we were in high school, and he very much wanted to be a model, and so he dragged me along to an open call for a modeling agency in Pittsburgh, and as luck would have it, they, they signed me. And uh, after doing a fair amount of, you know, modeling, but like, you know, like not high-end stuff like you know jc penny catalog but which, which was a great gig when you're in high school because you know everyone else is flipping burgers and i'm you know doing it so um i wound up booking uh, a commercial a regional television commercial for a bank and it was this big campaign and i got my sag card and so i didn't really understand at the time how invaluable that would be and what a leg up it would be once i really started to pursue acting so i've actually been in sag since i was 14 and a half years old, which is crazy. Um, and, you know, when I, when I came out to L.A. in 1987, you couldn't become a SAG member um, by doing background work. You can now if you accrue enough background work. You, it was this catch-22. You literally had to be hired by a SAG production who would be willing to pay money to Taft-Hartley you into the union. So in other words, they, they had to, like, really love you. You know what I mean? Because it's just easier to hire someone who's already in the union. Um, I already had my card, which made it a lot easier for me. So, yeah, that was um, the modeling and the commercial was kind of my uh, earliest foray into uh, into acting. Well, in 1989, you made your feature film debut as Mike Barnes, a.k.a. Karate's Bad Boy in Karate Kid 3, which had some new faces to the franchise, but also mainstays Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita. So tell us how you landed the part. Oh, if that information was only accurate. No, alas, <laughs> the first film. My first feature film was um, Hide and Go Shriek, which was <laughs> oh, oh, our one mistake. Of the worst horror films you've ever seen. Um, yeah, so uh, I had a mannequin's arm shoved through my chest. Yes, I died. Uh, as one does. As one does. But yeah, uh, in 1989, I, uh, I uh, booked Karate Kid 3. I, I booked it from an open call, which was really interesting because, you know, I, I showed up at the casting director's office the day before and I said, hi, I'm, I'm a real actor. I've done like one episode of TV and, you know, I've got my SAG card. And she said, that's great. Go to the, you know, go to the open call. And I did. And there were probably like 1,500 people in line outside the studio wanting to audition for the role of Mike Barnes, which was described as a 15-year-old white Mike Tyson, which I never thought of myself as. But <laughs> I really, I, you know, I had this sense of destiny. I really believed that I was going to get this role. And uh, John Abelson, who had directed uh, the first two Karate Kid films, he had directed uh, a pretty famous film about another underdog by the name of Rocky Balboa. Um, you know, I, I caught his attention and he brought me inside the soundstage to do a, a scene with Ralph Macchio. And, um, 
you know, I thought it went really well. And a couple of days later, I learned the crushing truth. That they went and they hired somebody else. And as luck would have it and fate would have it, about a week into filming, they decided the guy they hired just wasn't cutting it for one reason or another. And they called me back. And uh, I mean, if, if I can explain to you what it was like being, you know, a 21-year-old actor being called back to the studio, driving from my crappy little apartment above the Whiskey A Go-Go, you know, down Sunset Boulevard, looking at the Hollywood sign, knowing that something is going to happen. Because they're obviously not calling me to tell me that I, I didn't get the audition again. I figured, you know, maybe there's, right. there's a friend, there's a buddy, there's something. And when I got there, um, you know, after, after sort of a brief meeting with Robert Mark Heyman, who uh, was the creator of Karate Kid and went on to do, you know, the transporter and taken and all of that stuff. Um, they said, you got the part, you're starting tomorrow. And like sent me right to wardrobe. Like I didn't have time to call my parents and tell them what was happening. It was, That's um, you know, it was at lightning speed and completely surreal because you know, I had been a guy that a year before had bought a ticket to go see Karate Kid 2 in the theaters. And now here I am suddenly, you know, I'm the guy. Wow. Amazing. That's really is. great story. So what are your most vivid memories of actually filming it? I had a couple. I mean, it, you know, in the very beginning, like I said, it was surreal. I mean, I, you know, I had grown up watching Happy Days. So for me, Pat Morita was Arnold way before he was Mr. Miyagi. Um, and, you know, I very quickly had to realize that um, this was like this bigger than life experience, but I was there to do a job as a professional and I needed to kind of get my, get myself together really quickly. Um, obviously, filming the climactic All Valley Tournament scene was great. There were hundreds of extras and eight cameras and blah, blah, blah. Probably the most significant story that I have, though, is the one that, you know, I was, um, I almost lost my life doing the film. Um, we had been filming uh, for, I don't know, maybe three weeks and um, we broke for Christmas and uh, being the nice Jewish boy that I am, I decided to go to Las Vegas for Christmas. And, um, I had been having some significant pain in my left thigh, which I attributed to all the martial arts that I was doing. So I was taking a lot of aspirin. Well, I was at the Dunes Casino and I, I you know, started looking out over the tables and I was like, I think I'm going to pass out. And I passed out and I came to and the security and the EMTs were there and I was dying. I was bleeding to death. Um, the pain in my leg was from internal bleeding that I had and the blood was dripping down on my femoral artery and it was antagonizing the artery and the the aspirin, which is a blood thinner, was exacerbating the bleeding. And so this was Christmas Day, 1989. And, you know, while everybody else was home, you know, with family and, and, and unwrapping presents, I was literally dying in the emergency room of uh, Humana Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas. And so they said, we're going to have to operate on you. And I thought that meant Monday. And they said no in 15 minutes. And um, it was probably to date still the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to me. And uh, they said, look, you're, you're young and you're strong and we're going we're gonna to try and save your life. And I was like, try and save my life. I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life doing a martial arts movie. And they said, you've lost a lot of blood. And so they put me under. And uh, before they did, I, I said to the doctor, I said, listen, um, whatever you do, if you can not, uh, if you can not cut through my abdominal muscles and resect them, please do that because I knew if they cut my abdominal muscles, I was going to be out of the film. There's no way to heal. So 
So uh, long story longer, um, I come to, I've got 15 inches of staples on my abdomen. Uh, there's a guy in a bed next to me because I couldn't even get a single room. He died like a day later, which that, you, know, you don't think that's a harbinger of doom. And so I look up, there's my father who was absolutely gray. He flew through the night from Pennsylvania. They could only get one ticket that late, decided my dad was gonna come, my mom was gonna come later. And uh, in pretty short order, I got a call from John Avelson and you know, um, God rest his soul, but it wasn't really, you know, a whole lot of, Hey, how are you sending flowers? It was, you know, you need to be back on the set in 10 days. Or we're going we're, we're to recast. And, um, I was, you know, I, I, at that point, I honestly, I said to my dad, I said, look, if I can't finish this film, I don't want to live. And I know that sounds dramatic, but give me a break. I'm an actor. And so, <laughs> you know, um, I was really depressed and then something kind of interesting happened. The depression quickly switched to being angry. And, you know, I, I just felt that it was such an injustice. And so the first day I could get out of bed and walk over to the restroom in my room. And the next day I could walk around the entire hospital floor. And the day after that, I could walk around three times. And the day after that, five times. And I eventually had them discharge me against medical advice to return to set. And, um, you know, to make a long story now short, um, and there is a lot more to it, but I wound up doing all my own stunts in that film. Uh, and, you know, for that reason, the film is special to me. I mean, it's special because, it, you know, it's such a visible sort of iconic film, but really at a very young age when I thought I was immortal, I learned a valuable lesson that I wasn't, but I learned a more valuable lesson, which was, you know, at least in that instance, you know, when the chips were down, um, I, I, I rose to the occasion and, you know, it, it kind of, I guess, revealed a part of my character that I didn't really know up until that point in my life was there. That is unbelievable. And yeah. the fact that you were able to even finish the movie is certainly a testament to your strength, but also completely incredible. Um, Wow. Well, uh, moving on, in 1990, you had a recurring role in the Fox series The Outsiders based on the movie of the same name. So other cast members included Billy Bob Thornton, David Arquette, and even Leonardo DiCaprio. So what stands out to you about being a part of that show? Well, I grew up on S.E. Hinton's books. I mean, I grew up in The Outsiders. That was then. This is now Rumblefish. And, you know, again, as fate would have it, I found myself... Um, cast in a role that was such a part of my, you know, my, my adolescence. And uh, I played Greg Parker, who was the head of the socias, the rich kids gang. And, you know, it, it was, it was a really good experience, um, you know, working with amazing actors like Billy Bob and, you know, and all the others was great. I, I think, unfortunately, the best way I can say this is I was far and away the best behaved of all the actors. <laughs> and I think ultimately there were a lot of shenanigans which caused the network to pull the plug on it. And that's really unfortunate. Um, because I think it could have been something really, really great. I mean, you know, Francis Ford Coppola produced it, Fred Ruse from The Godfather also, you know, and it, it, was a, it was a great role. It was a lot of fun. I just wish it would have gone longer. Well, <clears throat> by all accounts here, it seems like your career is like humming along quite nicely. Uh, when late in 1992, I believe it was, you were tapped for your daytime debut, the role of AJ Quartermain on General Hospital. What do you remember about landing that role? 
Well, Steve Burton and I are cousins by marriage and we're very good friends, uh, especially at the time. And Steve said, look, um, they're going to recast the role of my brother. And especially, especially then, Steve and I had an uncanny resemblance. Um, you know, I was, I was very much in my wild years then. And, you know, poor Steve would like walk into a bar or a restaurant and they'd be like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> Canaan. Canaan was here, wasn't he? Um, so we used to always laugh about that. Uh, it was it was great. I, I screen tested and was the only guy that screen tested to the best of my knowledge. So I knew that if I didn't get it, it wasn't because they liked someone better. It was because they hated me. Um, fortunately, when I screen tested, I got the role. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it started um, what has been a, a, a magnificent, um, you know, 30-year plus relationship with daytime television. Um, I, I really loved playing AJ. Um, I had the good fortune of working, um, I would say not, not during like the golden age of General Hospital, but like probably the second best age of General Hospital. Totally. And uh, you know, I, I, I really wanted, you know, unfortunately, you know, one of the producers at the time said to me that, you know, AJ's job is to be an asshole. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I said, nobody thinks they're an asshole. They're, they're all fighting for what they believe in. And I said, I, I'm not going to play asshole. Um, I'll, you know, the circumstances might dictate that what I'm doing could be viewed that way. But I'm, you know, a guy fighting for his family's love and in trying to overcome, you know, these obstacles that he has of being kind of the black sheep and the ne'er-do-well. And so I, I think... One of the things that I really fought to do with that character, which worked, was to find the humanity in this guy and, and fight to make him likable and fight to make people feel for him rather than him just being, you know, kind of like this, this douchebag. And um, I think working that frequently as a young actor um, and, and having to memorize voluminous amounts of material really was. Um, an invaluable lesson. It really was like going to actor school in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you have to make choices very quickly. You have to make a myriad of choices that range uh, all along the emotional spectrum. And, um, you know, you're just, you're thrown into the mix and it's sink or swim. And I, you know, I swam for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, as a quarter main, you were instantly working alongside some of the most beloved players on the show, including Annalie as Lila, Leslie Charlson as Monica, Stuart Damon as Alan. So what stands out to you when you look back of, about the dynamics of being part of the quarter main family? <laughs> you know, uh, when you join an iconic show like General Hospital that has become part of the tapestry of American television, um, you know, the fans have been fans for so long that you're stepping into something and it's not like you're doing this small movie that no one has any expectations for or knows. It's like you're coming onto the stage of something that has lots and lots of people following it. Um, Stuart and Leslie were incredibly kind to me. Um, I was forever, you know, leaning into Steph, uh, to uh, Leslie's light and we'd be doing a scene and she would gently move me to the side. <laughs> And Stuart, I'll tell you, God love him. Steve Burton and I teased Stuart mercilessly. We loved him. We used to call him Slappy Damone, Stewie D. And uh, Stuart was really a funny guy um, and warm and kind. And uh, um, 
you know, I just really gravitated towards him right from the beginning. And Steve and I were great friends and just had a wonderful time. I mean, Steve and I really, we used to always say when AJ and Jason couldn't talk to each other on screen, Sean and Steve always could. And I think that's part of what made our relationship really believable and special. So it was a, it was a really um, great time for me in a lot of respects. Well, when you think about it, two of AJ's less than stellar moments, one would be driving drunk with Jason in the car, and then the other would be sleeping with Ms. Carly. They ended up having this huge impact on the course of GH history because in the former instance, Jason Quartermain became Jason Morgan, and in the latter instance, Michael Corinthos was born. When you think about all of the antics uh, that AJ took part in, what was the most fun for you to play? You know, a lot of the big scenes with the quarter mains, which were just like hijinks, you know, high comedy stuff that I don't think you normally see in a soap opera was fun. And the actors, the quarter mains, you know, I think most of us had pretty good comedic instincts. I mean, you know, even Anna Lee would come up with these, you know, quips and lines and looks that just were hilarious. And um, that was a lot of fun for me. Um, um, you know, I loved when we would do, we would always do the Thanksgiving show where dinner got ruined and some craziness would ensue. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and you know, I also felt wasn't necessarily fun, but you know, I, I got to be involved in a couple of storylines that I felt were really important. You know, the whole storyline stone getting AIDS was very difficult for me because I was very much cast as the Greek chorus of ignorance that existed in society about AIDS. And I, I went to Wendy Rich and I said, you know, this is really difficult for me because I have uh, a tremendous number of gay friends and it's really hard for me. And I ultimately rationalized that the story itself was very important and that if my role was to play, you know, you know, that voice in it, if I played it as well as I could, that it would make the story more believable and bring some good light and attention to it. Um, it was hard for me, but um, I, I feel like we, we did something very special and very important with that storyline. Absolutely. Um, now you did leave GH in 97, and then in 99 you had a run on Sunset Beach as Jude in the show's final months. So what was that experience like? You mean Special Agent Jude Kavanaugh? <laughs> Indeed, that's who I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun, you know? Um, I had a good time, I loved um, I loved working with the cast. It's where I first met um, Adrian Franz. It's where I first met um, Leslie Ann Down. Um, you know, I think uh, Annie and Jude, we had a lot of fun working together. We had kind of like this sort of fun, steamy relationship. And uh, it's one of the first times that I've ever gotten to play kind of like the hero, you know? I, I played a lot of bad guys, and uh, but this guy was just like a straight up, good guy hero um and and it was fun I, it was a really good experience it was unfortunate that um you know the show was already unfortunately kind of a sinking ship and i was on for the like the last six months but um i had tried for years to get on an aaron spelling show and just for one reason or another it never worked out and um i was very pleased internally that I was finally able to do a show uh, for Mr. Spelling and get the chance to meet him because, you know, he was such an incredible legend and such a cool guy. Um, I'll never forget. I, I was in Vegas one time and I saw him and uh, I hadn't met him yet. 
And I was there with my father and I said, hey, dad, there's Aaron Spelling. And I said, I'm going to go up and say hi. And so I went up and I said, hi, Mr. Spelling. I, I said, I don't know if you know me. And he goes, I know you. And he looked at my dad and he goes, your son's a very good actor. And I was like, I mean, I don't know if he knew who I was. I mean, the guy had 30 shows. He could have just been nice, but it was like my life, you know, in front of my dad to have Aaron Spelling say that. That's uh, amazing. I was spelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was too. <laughs> it was, that was a good moment. Definitely. <laughs> well, uh, the year after you were on Sunset Beach in 2000, you began a lengthy and memorable association with the Bold and the Beautiful when you came aboard as Deacon Sharp, who was the biological father of Eric Forrester III. Now, Deacon was supposed to be a short-term villain, but to the contrary, your first run lasted for over four years. So what do you remember about your early days as Deacon and finding out that B&B wanted to keep you around? You know, my relationship with Brad Bell and The Bold and the Beautiful has been probably uh, one of the top three special um, professional relationships that I've ever had. Um, I absolutely loved being on Bold and the Beautiful, and I love the character Deacon Sharp. Um, you know, I'm the only actor to have ever played him. Um, I, I've really been able to kind of put my stamp on him. I was given a tremendous amount of latitude that I'd never experienced before with the character, which is something very unusual. Um, um, when I found out that it be extended, I was so happy. And, you know, it, it's had a ripple effect on my life. Um, when I found out that Bold and the Beautiful at that time, I believe, was syndicated in like 110 countries and um, was incredibly uh, uh, followed in Italy. One of the smartest things that I've ever done in my life was I made the conscious decision that I was gonna to learn to speak Italian. And I figured if I could speak Italian, I could open up an entire other career world for myself. And I mean, I studied vociferously. I mean, uh, uh, private lessons, group lessons. I mean, uh, you know, I've studied for, now I've studied for, you know, well over a decade. Um, and it really was spectacular and ultimately wound up, um, you know, getting me a film in Italy. I did Dancing with the Stars in Italy by Lando Camastelle. And, um, you know, my wife and I were married there, had our honeymoon there. Um, it, it, you know, whenever I go to Italy, I, I do talk shows, which I'm able to do in Italian. So it's, it's just been a really um, wonderful byproduct of, of having been on the show. And, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I am you know, eternally grateful for the opportunity that Brad gave me. And, uh, you know, um, I, I get asked a lot if I would ever consider going back to General Hospital. And I, you know, I diplomatically say that I, I think that that um, chapter of my life is, you know, thoroughly closed. But with Bold and the Beautiful, I really don't roll that out at some point because I just really um, adore the people on the show, you know, cast and crew, too. You know, and there's a lot of new cast that I don't know now, um, but a lot of the crew are still there and the producers and directors. And so, um, you know, I, I don't rule out the possibility that at some point, maybe, you know, if, if they were interested in my schedule worked out, that Deacon would make a reappearance. Mm hmm. Well, Deacon was a busy man during your first stint. He married Bridget. He had a baby Hope with his mother-in-law, Brooke. He married Macy. You got to work with some pretty fantastic ladies, including Catherine Kelly Lang, Jennifer Finnegan, and Bobby Eakes. So what were the highlights for you of that time? 
So many. Um, you know, when I first came on the show, Jennifer Finnegan and Justin Torkelson and I were uh, were pals, and we just had a great time uh, on and off screen. Um, and it was it was just great working with both of them. Um, you know, the time with Catherine Kelly Lang. I mean, I think we really created something that was pretty steamy that really hadn't been seen too frequently before. Um, you know, it was a time when the show was willing to really push the envelope. Um, I don't think you could do a lot of the stuff that we did now. Um, um, loved working. I loved working with uh, Leslie Ann Down. I mean, there was nothing I loved more than going back to her dressing room and we would just sit and talk for like hours and she would tell me amazing stories in that beautiful patrician English accent of hers talking about how naughty she was with, you know, running around Jack Nicholson and Mick Jagger. <laughs> and I was just more, give me more. This is great. Uh, <laughs> I, I really liked it. You know, I looked forward to going to work all the time. And, um, um, you know, I, I went over to Italy with the show and um, I, uh, I did all sorts of stuff that was just fantastic experiences. Well, in 2009, you had a unique experience. You brought Deacon over to The Young and the Restless, and you were there on and off through 2012. What was that experience like? Um, that was really interesting. Um, I, I had always told myself that if I got to work with Eric Braden sometime, I needed to pinch myself for a second and realize that I was working with the best of the best. And then it became a function of could I hold my own with the best of the best? And I like to think I did. And, um, you know, the same with working with Melody. And, uh, you know, I, I adore Eric. I, I think he is just such a great actor. And, you know, he's a guy's guy. I really like him. I loved working with him. Um, Y&R, you know, first of all, it's an hour show. It's also... Um, professional is absolutely the wrong word. It's... it's um, I think it's a little more serious working on Y&R. And I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form negative to B&B. I think B&B, we were a half an hour show, a smaller cast. I think that was a little more fun. Um, and Y&R was, um, at least for me, because I was the new guy, remember? I mean, I, you, you might say if you if you talk to like, you know, Josh and you talk to Sharon Case and all those people that have been there forever. Oh, no, for us, it's like totally fun. Um, uh, but for me, I was, I was very cognizant of, okay, I've been given this opportunity. I need to kind of plant a stake here and, you know, in a good way, you know, make my presence felt and do justice to the character that Brad created and, and make sure that this, um, you know, this foray into a different show was successful. Mm -hmm. Well, what did it mean to you that they were able to find new avenues for Deacon and that a character that was going to be short term now had turned into a very long term situation here? No, I, I, for better or for worse, um, my career in a lot of ways, my life has been marked by seeming to have nine lives and having a, a preternatural ability to recreate myself. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do that. Um, yeah, uh, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a long-term thing. And, you know, um, it, was, it was a blessing and it was great. And, and, you know, like I said, I love playing Deacon so much that I, I was just ecstatic to be able to keep playing that character. 
Well, late in 2012, uh, it made some pretty big headlines when you returned to GH as AJ. What did it feel like to be back in that studio 15 years down the line? That, that was truly surreal. I mean, I never, ever, ever thought that I was going to go back to General Hospital. Um, it was, in a lot of ways, very familiar. Um, a lot of familiar faces. A little older looking. Me a little <laughs> But um, it, it was, uh, it was, for the most part, a pretty good experience. I mean, I was brought back for the 50th anniversary, which I'm very flattered that Frank Valentini brought me back. Um, uh, it was wonderful to reunite with Leslie Charlson and, uh, you know, to work with Maurice again and, and a lot of the people that I, I, you know, started out with. And so um, it was. It was very special. It was great, uh, you know, reconnecting with Mark Teschner. Um, so uh, I, I again felt very fortunate that I, I had the opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, now, quite controversially, AJ died at Sonny's hands with a little push from Ava in 2014. Now, you recently appeared on Maurice Bernard's YouTube show, State of Mind, so clearly there are no hard feelings over what he was scripted to do to you. But how did you feel about AJ getting killed off? Well, first of all, I love Maurice. I mean, you know, I've known Maurice since 1992. So I've known him a long time. And we were both talking about, you know, how interesting it was to sit down decades later in our careers and have a really honest, connected conversation together, realizing that in many ways, we're not the same guys we were all those years before. And yet it's still wonderful to talk to each other. So, um, you know, I, th I think what he's doing with that show and raising awareness for mental health issues, you know, bringing it out of the shadows and having an honest, open discussion is fantastic. Um, no, no hard feelings. Um, you know, I, I got to be honest, and I've said this before, and, I, you know, I don't think that AJ has ever really gotten a fair shake as an actor. I mean, I mean, as a, a character. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times the actors who have played him, uh, you know, it, it just sort of seemed like the deck has been stacked against them. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But um, um, I, I felt that there was so much that could be done, but I'm grateful for what, you know, the opportunity that I had. I'm grateful for Frank bringing me back. And, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's about as much as I can, I can say about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you bounced back very quickly and returned to B&B a few months uh, after AJ's unfortunate demise. And you were there uh, through 2016. During that run, Deacon got hitched to uh, Rena Sopers Quinn. Um, so what was it like for you to once again be back at B&B? It was great. I mean, it just familiar, wonderful. I was so happy to be back. You know, I've, I've known Rena forever too. I mean, we met around 1992 when she was playing Lois. Um, Rena starred in a film that I produced called March. Um, you know, so I have a long history with Rena and she's a tremendous uh, actress. And so um, I was very excited to work with her because I knew we would, we would come up with some really, you know, fun, you know, good stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I, I guess Deacon has been languishing in jail for quite a while now. So, uh, you know, maybe at some point uh, he will get uh, released or paroled. Right. It's too bad he couldn't have recently run into Liam and Bill who were there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, of all your daytime roles, is there one character that is closest to your heart? I, it, would, it would be Deacon for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, Deacon, Deacon is kind of like, you know, Deacon is way cooler than Sean is. Um, <laughs> he's kind of the badass that I wish, you know, I, I could have been. And uh, um, I think I got to excise a lot of those emotions and, and personality um, features in the character that, you know, being a normal human being and not probably at least 50% sociopath, you know, you know, I, I would never exhibit or at least try not to, you know, but it was a lot of fun playing it uh, on screen. Uh, now, in 2019, you took on the role of soap star Sam Stevens on the digital drama Studio City, which is available on Amazon Prime and also stars GH alum uh, Sarah Joy Brown and uh, General Hospital's Tristan Rogers, who plays Robert, among other names very familiar to daytime fans. You also serve as executive producer on the series. Your wife, Michelle, is a supervising producer, and you just won a daytime Emmy for Outstanding yeah limited drama series. So tell us about your Studio City experience. Well, so, you know, Studio City is a show that uh, that I created. Um, it was my baby. Uh, it was a show that I was trying to get made for a very long time in different incarnations under different names. Um, and, you know, through the right teammates, basically, my wife, uh, Timothy Woodward Jr., our, our showrunner and director and, and our incredible cast and crew, um, you know, it, it got made and it was absolutely, it has been a dream come true. You know, I, I wanted to show what it's like being a guy on a soap opera. And, you know, you initially look at Sam Stevens and think, okay, this guy's got the world by the tail. I mean, he's, you know, he works with beautiful women. He stars on a TV series, blah, blah, blah. But you very quickly realize as the emotional layers of the onion get pulled back, that he has a myriad of flaws. He is a guy that's, you know, trying to figure it out. He's no longer the young guy on the soap. He's, you know, definitely getting to be, you know, one of the, the veteran, he's one of the veteran actors, and they've got a new guy nipping at his heels. And he has all sorts of stuff, both on camera and off camera, that he's dealing with. And, you know, I realized, you know, I'd never been nominated for an Emmy uh, prior to Studio City. And, um, you know, I kind of resigned myself to thinking, okay, all right, you know, for one reason or another, I'm not going to get nominated. And then I said, okay, stop being um, a baby and get proactive. And I said, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm ever going to get nominated, um, I'm going to need to create a role for myself that allows me to do my absolute best work. And, um, you know, you know, as the creator and the executive producer of the show, I have a lot of latitude with my character, which is a tremendous advantage as an actor. You know, if something's not working, I can change it on the spot. I can change it on the fly and, you know, rewrite something. And that's, you know, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful advantage to have. Um, and I wanted to show a guy that was very much who I was maybe about 10 years ago. Um, you know, the, Sam, the, Sam Stevens in a lot of ways is very close to me. I'm just like, maybe like the original Xerox and he's like seven or eight <laughs> later, which gets less and less clear. And he's got, you know, I think a lot of stuff that, that I've hopefully been able to work out in my life. He's still trying to figure out. Um, and you know, we put together an amazing cast. Um, you know, I told Tristan Rogers, uh, I said, if you will, do this show. I said, I will write for you a role that is going to show people 
what they have never seen you do. It's not going to be Robert Scorpio. It's not going to be Colin, whatever his name is. I said, I know the depth and the passion and the pathos that you can bring. And we're going to show everybody. And I, I probably shouldn't say this because it's going to sound arrogant, but I was trying to get him on the show. So forgive me. And I said, if you trust me, I said, you're going to win an Emmy. And Tristan has had never won an Emmy. And he never been nominated and he never submitted himself. You know, he was very kind of, I don't know. He was, um, I think he was disenchanted with the, with the whole process. And so he just sort of said, screw it. And I said, let's, let's give this one more time. Let's work together. And, uh, he has just done a remarkable job with his character. And, you know, you know, I, I do scenes with him sometimes and I don't even need to talk. I just am able to kind of, react to what he's doing and, and, and act in silence because he's, he's doing such a great job. Um, Carolyn Hennessy, I mean, you know, a force of nature, just brilliant. I love working with Carolyn. We always, you know, come up with some really funny stuff. Um, I never worked for Gloria Monty, but I had heard the stories and that's why I named her character Gloria. And, uh, you know, I mean, I wanted her to be part dragon lady, but that that really is covering, you know, kind of like, I don't want to say a little girl because I, I, you know, but, but covering a much softer side where she really does love her actors, but she just can't show it all the time because she's, you know, in a very tough industry. Um, you know, Sarah was always going to be, um, one of my choices. Um, um, you know, originally the character was going to be a love interest for me. And we, we decided that if her character was a love interest, it just wasn't going to allow her enough um, story outlets. So we decided to make her my sister. And, uh, you know, she's terrific to work with. And, you know, and now we got these great guest stars. Like, who knew Ron Moss was so damn funny? I did. I knew it. <laughs> I knew. And uh, I was like, Ron, please, please do this. And, um, you know, Anna Marie Horsford, I mean, uh, you know, and, and Justin Torkelson, who, you know, had like had this little tiny thing, like Justin's such a mensch, you know, he came to the set and was like, what happened was we needed an Emmy as a prop. And so he came and, you know, my wife had him like basically running around doing stuff. And finally, Tim goes, what are you doing? This guy's an Emmy winner and <laughs> wanted to be a part of it. And so we, we created this little part for Justin and he had these brilliant moments of just sheer terror being uh, Gloria's assistant and uh, nephew. Um, just everybody on the show has brought something that has elevated from the page and, and made it something, um, you know, much more special than I think it was on the page. I was just going to say, I feel like we just need to say for the record that Tristan Rogers did win that Emmy. He did. And also, while the Academy might have overlooked Sean Kanan, let the record reflect that you were multiple Soap Opera Digest Award nominated, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and that's very flattering. It is, you know, and somebody asked me the other day, they said, what does it feel like to, you know, to win the Emmy and to be nominated for, for acting again? And I said, you know, I, the thing that keeps popping in my mind is that I finally get to sit at the cool kids table. That's mm -hmm. uh, it might be corny, but it's, it's true because I, I really, you know, I mean, after literally three decades, I had just resigned myself. I was like, this isn't going to happen. And I need to learn to make peace with that and live with it. And then, you know, to have this show come out at this stage of my career after I, I'm no longer working in daytime and 
to get this kind of recognition has been just humbling. I mean, I'm like beyond grateful and appreciative to everybody who voted for me, everyone who supported this show. Um, it's, it's a little overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what did you think when your name was called? So I was teaching a martial arts seminar in, in Pennsylvania. Um, and it was the same time I committed to it months ago. And it was the same time that the Emmys was on. And so I made the conscious decision that I was going to leave my phone in the car. And I, because I knew that people were going to start blowing me up one way or the other. And it was either going to be congratulations or I'm sorry. And I didn't want that to affect what I was doing in the seminar. And so as the seminar came to an end, my father who was there walked through the doors and just looked at me and he said, you won. And I couldn't talk. I mean, I am, I'm rarely at a loss for words. And, um, I, uh, I got very quiet for a while. I, I really just, you know, was trying to digest it. And, um, you know, I, I, it didn't seem real. And, and then of course, you know, it was, you know, talk to my wife and talk to everybody involved and, and, and share it and congratulate each other. But, um, it was, um, it was a, just a very special moment, something that I feel like, you know, no one can ever take away from me. And, and, and it was mine and that was my experience. And, you know, maybe the other actors were screaming and yell, I, I don't know, but it was, it was a really beautiful, special moment for me. Mm-hmm. Um, also with Studio City, I mean, you obviously have a lot of source material, but you do mention that maybe it's somewhat autobiographical or at least that, you know, maybe Sam is experiencing some things that you experience. So um, do you ever have a moment of, do I want to share this? Do I want to have my character do this? Is it too close to home? I'm always trying to push for the laughs in the show. I mean, I realize that it's a drama, but, but in my head, it's a dramedy. And um, I don't ever want to do anything that if I'm, if I want to make somebody uncomfortable with my acting, I want to to be through the emotionality of the story rather than specific events that may or may not have happened. That's not my goal to do that. Um, And I, you know, so much of it is a conglomerate of things that have happened to me or stories that I've heard that have happened to other people or stuff that's straight up fiction. I mean, you know, it's not all real. Um, So no, there hasn't really been anything yet. Um, But you know, we're, uh, we're only in, basically season one, so we shall see. (laughs) Well, in recent years, you have also become a published author. Uh, You have written The Modern Gentleman. You have written Success Factor X. And your newest book is The Way of the Cobra. So please tell us about The Way of the Cobra. So Way of the Cobra, um, the book is structured that I am the sensei. You are a student in my dojo, the dojo of life, of Cobra life. And Cobra is an acronym formed from the words character, optimization, balance, respect, and abundance. And these are basically like the battle-tested strategies and philosophy that I've used to, you know, achieve some success in my life. And, um, you know, the genesis for this was about Three years ago, I found myself in a really, you know, strange position. I was, um, I, I I'd had some pretty significant success. I had had some epic failures, some of which were well publicized. And I was looking in the mirror and going, okay, you know, you're 50 years old. What's next? What's, what's act two? And I wasn't working as an actor. I had no prospects for work at that point in time. 
And I realized that I needed to start doing some things very differently, very quickly. And I decided that rather than wait for my ship to come in, I was going to build the damn ship. I just had to figure out how. And in the course of that year, um, you know, we got Studio City on Amazon Prime, nominated for eight Emmys, won one. Um, I finished Success Factor X, which became an Amazon new release bestseller and was voted one of the 20 most inspirational books the last two decades and all of this great stuff started happening. And I wanted to share the strategies that I use. You know, I, I thought I got into acting originally because I wanted to express myself. And as I've gotten older, I've realized I really got into it because I wanted to have a voice to inspire people. And as I've gotten older yet, I've realized that acting is only one conduit to being able to inspire people. I can do it with my personal coaching and motivational speaking, with my my writing. And so you know, I always say when I do podcasts, yeah, sure, I want to sell books, but honestly, with, with every fiber in my body, I want to get this book into as many people's hands as possible because I know the information in it is transformative. Um, and I say in the book, you know, transform yourself and you can transform the world. And the tagline for the book is Unleash Your Inner Badass. And everybody has one. It may be yet undiscovered. It may have gotten lost along the way like mine did and had to be dusted off and, you know, put back into the game. Um, but I believe that everybody has something special to share with the world, and that is their authentic self, their most authentic self. And I know that this book has information in it that can help people achieve that. And if people would like to get it, they can get it at wayofthecobra.com. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Um, well, as if I don't already feel like a total slacker um, listening to you, you've also made some movies recently. So tell us about that. This has been an amazing year. You know, if you would have told me at the beginning of a year where there's a pandemic that I would do back-to-back -back films with Bruce Willis, I would have said, I am really glad that you've got such a positive attitude. And uh, thanks for the vote of confidence. But <laughs> I got a, you know, I got a bridge to sell you in New York and <laughs> as luck would have it, uh, uh, an incredible director that I've worked with on multiple films named James Cullen Bressack, um, you know, hired me to do a film called Killing Field in Puerto Rico with Bruce Willis and Chad Michael Murray. Um, and, uh, I was in Puerto Rico for, for about three weeks and came back and, I knew they were doing another film with Bruce Willis. They're doing all this production in Puerto Rico because of these tax credits. And I just hammered James Cullen Bressack and said, look, you know, you know, I, I, I brought it home. I've never let you down. You got to put me in this movie. And I just, this poor guy, I just berated him. <laughs> all right. Just, yes. Okay. And so I, came and, and you know, um, like a month and a half after I was there doing a film where I had to get a Mohawk, um, I, uh, I found myself back in the jungles of Puerto Rico uh, playing another role opposite Bruce Willis. And it was, uh, it was, it was phenomenal. It's great. That's amazing. Give us a Bruce Willis story. Um, well, you know, look, I mean, I obviously grew up on, you know, Bruce Willis. I mean, you know, you, you start really thinking about the litany of movies that he's done from Pulp Fiction to, you know, uh, the fifth element to even moonlighting. You know what I mean? Um, yeah was really cool. You know, he was just kind of a down to earth guy. I mean, um, you know, he only worked for a couple days. That's kind of his deal. They fly him in, he does a couple days and then he's out. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the scenes that I did with Bruce, um, 
later I, I did scenes with, you know, doubles and things like that because he was out, but uh, it'll look like it's Bruce. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't disappointing. He was really cool. He was really nice. I mean, you know, he's, he's a little older now. I mean, as, as time marches on, but he's still got kind of that, you know, um, you know, that, that half crooked smile he has and that, that sort of look in his eye that like, you know, if you're walking down a dark alley, you know, you want this guy walking next to you. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really honored and blown away. Um, well, on the personal front, obviously you and Michelle are going strong. You're also a father of one and a stepfather of four. So tell us how your family's doing. My family's doing great. Um, Michelle and I have our uh, uh, ninth anniversary. Family's doing great. Uh, you know, this is a this is a really wonderful, exciting time in our lives right now. And it's just so cool to be able to have won this award with my wife. And, you know, much like Way of the Cobra, um, Studio City would not have happened without Michelle. Um, you know, I, I have a pretty strong skill set, but it's it's limited. She's got an amazing skill set, which is vast and wide. And, um, you know, she has been um, in a lot of ways kind of like the, the solidifying force, which has gotten things done. Um, you know, even with my book, she she designed the cover. She completely did all the editing and formatting of the book. You know, we normally you send it out to somebody, you pay them a lot of money. She's like, I'll learn the computer program and do it. And I was like, are you kidding? And so she took four days, learned this computer program, and she edited and and formatted the book, which is the, the really hard part. And I was just like, you are amazing. This would basically be a manuscript in my desk if, you know, it wasn't for you. And so wow. to be able to share, um, uh, you know, the award, the Emmy for best, best show in our category with her is amazing. Um, I asked her where you're going to, where are you going to keep your award? And she said, uh, around my neck, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's, 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 you know, it's our first one. It's just so exciting. Definitely. Really fantastic. Well, Sean, it's crazy to think of this, but next year will mark the 30th anniversary of you being hired at General Hospital. Wow. And starting this whole journey with daytime television. So looking back, how would you say that landing that job changed your life in general? And, and, and how has your association with the soap opera genre changed your life? Oh, it's changed my life in innumerable ways. Um, you know, it has allowed me to go places and see things and work with amazing people. Um, you know, I, I very much wanted Studio City to be a love letter to the soap. So often when we see soaps portrayed in the media, it's like with a wink and a nod and like they're the butt of a joke. And that's not what I wanted this to be. I, I definitely wanted there to be funny moments, but I wanted people to recognize that there are terrific actors in daytime. Some of the best actors I've ever worked with uh, come from daytime. And so for that reason, I didn't want the scenes on Hearts on Fire to be like these hyperbolic, overly dramatic moments that were, you know, it's like where the actors kind of winking and nodding going, I know I'm doing bad acting because it's a soap. And I was like, that ain't happening. I said, I want you to play these straight. Some of the dialogue will be funny. Some of the circumstances will be elevated, but you play it straight. And, um, you know, I, I feel really fortunate that, that it's obviously getting a good reception. Um, and, uh, you know, I have such a soft spot in my heart for daytime. Um, I think one of the reasons that, you know, daytime has continued on through 
unbelievable obstacles and challenges is that at the end of the day, daytime creates really connected, authentic relationships that people, they, they invest themselves in. And even if you don't watch a show for a while, you can come back to it and you're, you're reimmersed really quickly into um, the way the characters honestly relate to each other. And I think, you know, in a weird way, that's something we should all strive for in real life. Well, the idea that it's even been three decades is just crazy, um, but it's quite a milestone in addition to all of the other amazing things going your way, and we you thank you look, so much. For you don't have to look at pictures from three decades ago. I do. <laughs> we do, too. We do, too. <laughs> it's one of the things about being an actor is your life is chronicled by the press, and, um, you know, you're like, was that really me, <laughs> you know? And yeah, I, guess the, I guess the secret is you try and, you try and age gracefully and and you know for you know for every season you know there's there's something special and uh um i you know i can't wait to see what the next chapter is well but thank same you here so much i love talking to you guys this was like just kind of sitting down with a couple of friends and and talking and um thank you so much i've listened to the show um for a while and i uh i'm, I'm really honored that you guys uh, asked me to do Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us because I have to say I am a fan of Studio City. I think you've done an amazing job with it. I look so forward to seeing what's coming next. But it, you had just so many terrific stories to share, and I feel like I got to know you in a whole different way. I've never met you, and now we're old friends. Well, listen, <laughs> listen you got to promise me that if we ever are somewhere together, you come up and say hello to me, okay? If I don't see you first. Of course. Absolutely. Okay. Hope that's All right. soon. All, right. yourself. All the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Sean Kanan for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. <laughs>